Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 5, season 1, and today I speak to Dr. Joseph Ryan, a, a historian with the United States Army. Joseph has recently produced a book on the sociologist Samuel Stauffer and the GI survey that took place during the Second World War. Joseph spoke to me from his office in America about what this said about the motivation of the American soldier during that conflict. Joe, welcome to the Combat Morale podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Samuel Stauffer and the GI survey? Well, hi, Tom, and thanks for having me. I'm no one in particular, but I've studied soldier behavior in depth, both as, as a historian and as an Army officer. The idea to study the work of Samuel Stouffer and Stouffer himself came from my dissertation advisor, the late Professor Roger Spiller. At the time, I was reading George McDonald Frazier's wonderful book, Flashman, and Harry Flashman asked essentially the same question Stouffer did, why should one notice one's men? And I thought that question deserved some formal exploration. And now, just before we get into the detail, I should say that everything you've said and that you're going to say are your own personal opinions and do not represent the views of the US, US government, US Department of Defense or any other US government agency. So, what... Yes, sir, that's correct. <laughs> so once you got that out, that out of the way, why do you think a book was necessary on Stauffer and his survey? Well, I just thought it was interesting. Like many military historians of my generation, I cut my teeth on Sir John Keegan's The Face of Battle, which I found made a refreshing break from grand strategy, hagiographies of generals, and the red and blue arrows that seemed to move so effortlessly across tactical maps to their predestined positions as winners or losers. I also thought that the most compelling passage of Clausewitz's On War had to do with the soldiers' movement towards the battle area, the fear and the confusion. The fog of war, as we all know Clausewitz called it. I found the behavior of men in extremists interesting, even compelling, and I thought others might find it interesting as well. So let us start with Samuel Stauffer. Who was he and what was his background? Stauffer was born in Sac City, Iowa in 1900. He took a bachelor's degree in Latin from Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa, and a master's in English from Harvard. Then he returned to Sac City in 1923 to edit his father's newspaper, the Sac City Sun. A few years later, he went to the University of Chicago to study sociology and wrote his doctoral dissertation on the attitudes surrounding prohibition, attitudes he researched, researched through surveys. He then spent the interwar years in postdoctoral work at the University of London as a professor at the universities of Chicago and Wisconsin and consulting with various agencies and institutions on the sociological dynamics of the Great Depression. By 1940, he was one of the most prominent ac academics in his field, and his work had caught the interest of the Army, which was facing a draft of millions and a world war. He helped the Army move away from World War I-era management of soldiers through morals and aptitude to the World War II methods of morale and attitude. In the 1940s, Stauffer heads up a body known as the Research Department. What was this body, why was it set up, and what was its purpose? Well, that brings us back to Sir John Keegan. 
you quite correctly that prior to the early 20th century, when soldiers and sailors misbehaved, you beat them. But as you know, society changed radically between the war, and commanders began to have to learn the language of motivation rather than the call for the cat of nine. It followed relatively swiftly thereon that commanders had to know their men, what their men were thinking, their attitude, so they could minister to those attitudes without resorting to the lash. Command began to become a matter at least partially of persuasion rather than coercion. Persuasion was required to handle the much better educated soldiers and sailors of the 20th century that the 20th century provided and in the millions it provided them. Draftees tended to be quite a bit more skeptical and not to put too fine a point on it, less obedient than regulars. To avoid the ugly scenes of mutiny and punishment in the thousands the Second World War would have brought, many militaries worldwide began to take, well, a more holistic view of military discipline. No one embraced these ideas or enthusiasm. The American Army Chief of Staff, General George C. Marshall, it was he who brought the research branch into being, placing it within the Information educa and Education Division of the U.S. Army. Their job was to help through survey research commanders to know the attitudes of their troops so they could best see to that ostensibly new French word everyone was learning, morale. American soldiers in the 1940s, largely draftees, had different expectations for their treatment than the, did those of 1914. Their general attitudes leaned egalitarian, and their officers had to learn to lean with them. So what work did the research body undertake, and how did it shape U.S. military policy concerning morale and motivation of service personnel? Well, of course, the vehicle for research branch was surveys, so Stauffer set about designing a process to survey as many servicemen as he could, which turned out to be about half a million during the war. Initially, surveys had to be ordered from on high, and there were quite a few commanders who saw not only no need for surveys, but also saw surveys as a means to encourage soldier griping and discontent. It was not too long, however, before commanders began to see the value of surveys and began to request more of them than Stauffer's small staff could administer. So research branch expanded quite a bit during the war. As to the actual conducting of the process developed into a series of about a dozen steps. A unit requested a survey or research branch either initiated their own or one that was ordered by the War Department. Research branch then sent, branch then sent a man into the field to discuss subjects with GIs that bore on us. Then, based on these discussions, research branch developed and tested survey questions and selected additional units to participate in the survey. After that, survey subjects were briefed on the survey and its purpose. Survey subjects then filled out the survey anonymously. In many cases, questions were asked using the Likert scale, which was developed by research branch consultant Rensis Likert in the 1930s. These questions were intended to determine how strongly someone held an attitude, and we have all seen them in the surveys we have taken, agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree, etc. Survey subjects were also asked open-ended questions to which they responded narratively and anecdotally. Results of the surveys were assigned numerical codes and punched into IBM cards. The cards were then electronically sorted and tabulated. Each branch then summarized the findings and prepared a report which was distributed as the Army saw fit. One of the ways research branch disseminated their findings was through a publication entitled What the Soldier Thinks. These pamphlets became so popular with officers that research branch could not keep up with the demand for surveys and other publications the pamphlets instigated. So in some ways, the branch was a victim of its own success. Still, we must remember that these things occurred in the early 1940s and during a world war. 
neither the culture nor the circumstances allowed or wanted endless surveys on everything as we have today. Opinions were still just opinion. Still, the work of the research branch influenced everything from how soldiers were equipped to how they were assigned specialties, paid, awarded, and decorated, transferred, and demobilized. Research branch influenced training strategies, leave policies, and what candy bars soldiers could buy at their post exchanges. So how did Stauffer shape the work of the research branch? Stauffer was interested in the research. He was a bit of a purist. He had no interest in politics or status. He went where the data took him. He understood the numbers, but he was also well-grounded in Shakespeare. He wrote that barometric pressure is certainly important when considering weather, but so also is a description of a typhoon by Conrad. He took a specific approach. He took a scientific approach, but he also understood that sociology is not a science in the way that chemistry. He was a kindly, secure, chain-smoking man of tremendous energy who hated jargon and who insisted the American soldier be written in the Queen's English. George Orwell said of Winston Churchill's writings that they read as if they had been written by a human being, which is high praise indeed. I think he would have said the same of Stauffer's writing. Stauffer shaped the work of research branch to be a human rather than a bureaucratic undertaking. What impact do you think the research branch and Stauffer had on the U.S. war effort? I think research branch helped the Army to understand its soldiers so that they might be better trained, equipped, and led. One thing that's uh, sort of slightly off question, but one thing I was wondering was, did the Navy conduct similar uh, surveys of their personnel? Um, they Not on the scale that the Army did. They did get interested in the work that Research Branch was doing, and they did some, uh, some work with weapons and weapons that soldiers uh, or sailors tended to fear, but they didn't do anything on the scale of what Research Branch was doing with the Army. And we ha- I just have to add for our British listeners that so the uh, U.S. Air Force was then part of the U.S. Army and only became an independent force after the Second World War. Yes, that's correct. The the U.S. Army Air Corps during the war uh, and then towards the very end, the U.S. Army Air Forces, but very much part of... Right. Now, after the war, Stauffer and a number of his colleagues published The American Soldier, a major document based on the work of the research, research branch during the war. What purpose? Um, what was the purpose of writing The American Soldier and what did it suggest about the motivation and morale of American soldiers and airmen? Well, Stauffer wanted the work of research branch to be preserved and readily available. He had hundreds of thousands of documents and IBM cards with raw data and so forth. After the war, almost all of those who had worked in with or for research branch were quickly returning to their universities, other institutions, businesses, or if they were in the military, to other pursuits in civilian life. With the help of the Carnegie Corporation and the Social Science Research Council, Stauffer was able to persuade some of his colleagues to help write, and he was able to fund and edit the writing of the American soldier. It was published by Princeton University Press in 1949. Uh, A little bit of an explanatory note on the volumes themselves. The American Soldier comprises the first two volumes of a four-volume study entitled Studies in Social Psychology in World War II. The third and fourth volumes are subtitled Experiments in Mass Communication and Measurement and Prediction and largely deal with sociological methodology and math. The American Soldier volumes are subtitled Adjustment During Army Life and Combat and Its Aftermath. The two volumes of The American Soldier include a vast amount of both statistical and anecdotal data. The data support the findings of Stouffer and the research branch that the American soldier in the Second World War fought to get the job done so he could go home 
and for his fellow soldiers. Many soldiers were sometimes cynical about the war itself, its aims, etc., particularly in Europe, right up until they began liberating concentration camps. After that, complaining lessened a great deal, and they had a firm idea of what they were fighting for in a larger sense. So what was the impact of the American soldier on contemporary thought about morale and motivation in the 1950s? Unfortunately, the American soldier was quickly relegated to academic and, in particular, sociological circles. Despite its overwhelmingly positive reviews and endorsements by such luminaries as General Marshall, who had become Secretary of State in 1947, and even Ernest Hemingway, with the coming of atomic warfare, soldier behavior seemed less important, and the usual myths about God, flag, mother, and country as the sine qua nons of soldier motivation began to reassert themselves. The American soldier was quickly overcome by popular potboilers about the war, both fiction and nonfiction. Today it is recognized as a classic, which means it is, all, it is almost never actually read. More widely, much more consumed and taken as articles of faith are the products of Hollywood and Pinewood Studios, where everything is generally, not always, wrapped up nicely in two hours with a stirring soundtrack and photogenic stars. And what do you think has been the longer-term impact of the American soldier on our understanding of combat motivation, morale, and people in battle? Not nearly as great as it should have been. There are data in it that are still quite applicable, and the sample was large, 500,000. Not only that, but it is interesting, well-written and documented, and helpful in understanding the human condition. However, the American soldier covers a drafty U.S. Army in a world war at a particular time in history. American culture, as that of most of the world, has changed a great deal, to the point that with different priorities and values in the existing 40s, it is reasonable to question if the very sound conclusions reached by Stauffer and his colleagues on some things may still apply today. I think most of them do. Attitudes towards fear, for instance, or the human desire to avoid pain and seek pleasure, these things are eternal. The American army during sort of the Vietnam era, era, and it sort of had this sort of breakdown in morale, you know, from 1968 to about 1972. And I wonder whether they conducted any sort of similar type of research amongst the, the combat soldiers who came back. So obviously, it's a large army being rotated through, and it has severe motivational problems in certain units. And I thought, you know, it's interesting that you had this wonderful survey done in the 40s. Many people would have probably read it who were in service during the 60s. And it's just that sort of feeling that, you know, the U.S. Army has these problems. Do they approach them in the same sort of way? Um, they, they don't. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, generally, in the, in the Vietnam War, you're dealing very much with individual draftees who go and do their year as an individual and then leave as an individual. I was reading uh, Michael Hur's Dispatches, which is a, a classic from the Vietnam War just yesterday. And the, the standard question in Vietnam for a soldier was, how long have you got left? Not, you know, when is the war going to be over? It's a, it's a completely different attitude. So where in the Second World War, units are coming and going until the very end when you, get, you do get individual infantry replacements. In the, in the Vietnam War, it's individuals coming in and out. And the attitude is, is different. Uh, also, by the time Vietnam uh, rolls around, the way Americans think, you know, World War II is ancient history. Uh, anything that's more than 10 years old is ancient history. They do, uh, they do question, they do ask, but they don't tend to reach back. Uh, they may do some of the same work that Stouffer did over, uh, certainly not on that scale, 
but they don't seem to be really aware of the work that he had done. Really, and the other thing I was really interested in was what was the sort of role of Stauffer and how did he compare to the work of other sociologists at the time? For instance, Morris Yanovitz, Edward Schills, obviously Slam Marshall, and people like Tommaso Shibatani. Uh, and they, they produced some uh, really amazing work that, again, doesn't have the impact that uh, Stauffer appeared to have. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Stauffer tended to stay in his time, the, the late 40s and early 50s, where uh, Janowitz and some of the other guys that you're talking about, they had a little bit more... Um, more lasting power, I guess, uh, well into the 70s, certainly. And I think that's because Stauffer was a statistics man, uh, and their work tended to be a little bit more esoteric. So it was, I don't want to say vague, because that's a pejorative term, uh, but, but Stauffer's work tended, people tended to look at that and go, well, yeah, those are statistics from World War II, we've moved on now. And the, the larger general uh, truths of the human condition in combat and in the military uh, are a little bit more flexible. They, you know, they they don't they they won't live in Stouffer statistics, and nothing could be further from the truth because what Stouffer or Stouffer does is he takes the statistics and then he gives life to them. He analyzes them. and he also gives you you know anecdotally what soldiers were saying and thinking at the time. I think the real problem, uh, Tom, is that Stouffer's work is long. Uh, the two volumes of the American Soldier are, are well over a thousand pages. Uh, American officers are quickly. It's it's part of the military mind that you know you you get you get what you need, you go do it, and then you get more, and then you go do that, and you don't have a whole lot of time to sit around reading thousand page books. Um, so in, I think in that way, maybe Stauffer's work was a bit too technical uh, and not uh, popular enough, uh, for lack of a better term. And did Knute Pipping's work ever sort of feature at all? Um, for those who don't know about Knute Pipping, he was a Finnish machine gun officer, fought, in, fought on the Axis side for the Finnish, Finnish units fighting around Leningrad, and he produced his PhD thesis in 1947. Um, and again, it looks at motivation within his unit, and it's relatively unknown. Uh, but it is, in a way, it's very, very important, I think, in explaining how people function in combat. Yeah, there there are a lot of works. Uh, I won't say a lot, but there are many works like that, some that go back to the Napoleonic Wars. Um, I, I think sometimes these things can be ephemeral and just not very well known. Uh, some works like that need to be resurrected, which was part of the motivation that I had in, in doing Stouffer and writing about Stouffer because his, people had just forgotten. And so I wanted to provide a, a smaller volume, a more accessible volume that would sort of introduce them to Stauffer, and then maybe they would go on and read his actual work. Uh, so that, that was part of my goal in writing it. There are, there are these things that stick out, and you can find them all the way back in ancient history, and you can find them in mythology about how soldiers behave and what they do. And, and some of these things are culturally bounded, but almost always that they, they – the closer they get to the firing line, the less they care about patriotism, and they really care about their buddies as as not only friends but comrades who they can depend on. So if they fight for each other, they have a practical for doing that because that's going to protect them. Somebody's watching their back. But then there is also the affection that, that you get that, and that builds through going through difficult uh, circumstances. So there, there is a theme there that runs all the way back to... Finally, Joe, where can people learn more about your work? 
Well, I would encourage people to read or at least scan the American soldier. And if they're interested in soldier behavior and combat motivation completely divorced from romanticism and myth, I would recommend Paul Fussell's Wartime and Jay Glenn Gray's The Warriors. I would also highly recommend Roger Spiller's translation of Ardent Dupique's Etudes sur le combat or Battle Studies. Joe, thank you very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, sir.